Welcome back to From the Bridge, your source for all things about sponsorship. This is Rick Jones of Fishbait Marketing, and I'm glad you've chosen to join us today. Today, we're going to talk about building an activation plan. We'll have another Tuesday tip and another segment of On the Road with Rick. Most importantly, you'll hear from one of the great innovators of our time, the legendary Matt Schechner of Stillwell Partners and the founder of Advertising Week, now not only in New York City, but in multiple cities around the world. So let's ease off from the shoreline and head to deeper waters from the bridge. As you are nearing the close of a deal, it's time to pay attention to how the prospective sponsor plans to actually activate the sponsorship and to make sure they have all the assets needed in their agreement to fulfill those activation plans. And this requires a lot of dialogue about the activation plan up front. Now, I like to collaborate with the sponsor and their various agencies in developing the activation plan. In fact, I like having their agencies in the room from the initial pitch right to the signing date and to build allies with their agencies. Let's face it, agencies exist to activate, and they may be your best source for determining where the sponsor is going to take the sponsorship. Uh, Of course, you know, we've guided the discussions from the very beginning and should have a pretty good grasp about their activation plans. The salesperson needs to be a resource to help write the plan, share the plan, get the plan approved, get resources necessary to maximize the plan, and the ability to constantly review and tweak the plan. You need to make sure there's room for tweaking or adding or eliminating assets in that contract so the sponsor can take advantage of things they didn't know about before they actually get into the activation. They may find some new things they want to do or some things that they don't want to do, and you don't want to be stuck with a contract that either allows or disallows that. Once the sponsor knows how they want to activate, it's now time to make sure everything they need will now be in a contract. And that leads us to the marriage. I like to start with what I call the prenuptial agreement. And that's where we're going to give them a term sheet with all the list of assets that you are providing. And I'm going to ask for immediate feedback on the term sheet. I want to know, is there something we've left out? Have we misunderstood anything? Is there something missing? Um, Are there other things they might want to add? In some cases, are there things that are not important to them that we might be able to eliminate? From that, then we will prepare a letter of intent. Then and only then will we go to a formal contract. Now, no disrespect to lawyers, but I've often often found that lawyers think they're, they're actually there to negotiate the agreement, and that's not their job. That's not so. They are there to memorialize the terms of the term sheet and not start dictating or arguing about those terms because the terms have already been agreed to by both parties through both our term sheet and our letter of intent. And then that leads us to the contract. Now, 
for the contract, you need to use a lawyer, trust me. And that means both parties need to use a lawyer because most people in the sponsorship world are not lawyers. Uh, The contract needs to list the assets. It needs to talk about the financial terms. It needs to talk about the payment terms. It also needs to talk about the renewal terms. Then everyone needs to have a big glass of champagne and celebrate because both parties are winners. You know, there's a tendency in America especially to when you're sitting around the table with a bunch of people, you're looking for who the loser is at the table. Well, the truth is there's no loser in this. The, the losers are either the other properties they didn't buy or the competitive corporations they compete against who are not getting these assets. And everyone should be a winner. Now it's time for our Tuesday tip. Uh, one of my favorite all-time singers is the late Kenny Pendergrass, who started his career actually as the drummer and lead singer for the Philadelphia musical group, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. One of their songs written by the great songwriting team of Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff says to be for real in everything you do. In other words, be yourself. God made only one you. Be what you are, not what others want you to be, or even necessarily what you think you should be. You have unique skills and talents. Your job is to nurture and grow those talents. Quit obsessing about your weaknesses. Greatness comes from focusing your energy on maximizing your strengths and not minimizing your weaknesses. Find out what you're good at and become great at it. That's how champions are built. Speaking of being real, my guest angler is simply one of a kind. There are some people you just love being around, and Matt Schechter is one of them. Matt is the CEO of Stillwell Partners in New York City. He's had an amazing and creative career working for Ted Turner on the Goodwill Games, promoting the famous Coney Island hot dog eating championships, and most importantly, creating Advertising Week, first in New York City and now in six cities around the world. And oh, by the way, he's a member of the legendary Friars Club in New York City, where you can find him eating chop suey every Thursday. Let's welcome the incomparable Matt Schechner to the bridge. Lord Schechner, welcome to From the Bridge. Good morning. Great to be with you, Rick. Well, I've been watching the Ken Burns uh, PBS special on country music, and in one of the episodes I was reminded something that I had known, that the big radio station in Atlanta, WSB, stood for Welcome South, brother. And uh, you were raised on Long Island, but you came to Emory. You 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 came you came south. Uh, so talk about talk about being raised on Long Island and what drove you to to Emory in Atlanta. Well, my family was all from Brooklyn, and I grew up in Queens. One of the geographic anomalies of 
New York City is Brooklyn and Queens geographically are on Long Island. Uh, only the Bronx is attached to America. Manhattan's an island. Staten Island's an island. And uh, so where I grew up was sort of the Queens-Nassau border, which is what most people consider to be Long Island. And, um, you know, it was a typical suburban community. Where I grew up in Queens, the ethnic mix was pretty good. Um, so I went to public New York City schools. And, uh, and Emory was just a really good school at that time. And it was about the best school that I could get into. I knew that it was uh, up and coming. They had just gotten a huge grant from the Coca-Cola family, the Woodruff family, I believe. And this was 1981, 82. And at that time, that was the biggest grant that any university had ever received. So I knew the school would be getting better over time. Um, and it was very good then, and it's great now. But I, I absolutely loved living in the South and still have a lot of friends from down there. And I think, you know, I didn't want to go to college and spend all that money, all my parents' money, for, and be with all people that were just like the ones I grew up. So I think the variety of people that I met and the experience of living in the Southern culture was one that I still relish to this day. You know, I tell people a lot that we none of us see the world as it is. We see the world as we are, and that's dangerous <laughs> because we can get very myopic, I think. And so I think that was so wise uh, for you to say, I'm going to step out of my comfort zone <laughs> and go to someplace, you know, really totally different. Uh, so you get out of – so what happened? You get out of school, and what happens? Where do you start? Emory bred professionals, and every single one of my friends, without exception, became a doctor, a lawyer. And I remember sitting in Cox Hall, the dining hall at Emory, with my advisor, a political science teacher named Wayne Sulfridge. I don't know if he's still around. And he said, well, what do you think you want to do? And I said, well, I'm not very good in science, so I guess I'll go to law school. And he said, well, do you want to be a lawyer? And I said, not really. And it was a conversation as simple as that that led me to the conclusion that I needed to go get myself a job. So uh, my very first job was from a newspaper clip that my mom found for me. My mom was very good on, she would always clip little articles for me and, and leave them. And so she clipped something about a mayoral commission called the Commission on the Year 2000. And we had a, a mayor then, very charismatic guy named Ed Koch. And he had this blue ribbon panel, plot a course for the future of New York City. And uh, it looked very interesting to me. And on a summer break or a spring break, rather, home, I went to City Hall. I didn't know where to go. And I said, hi, do you know where the office of the commission on the year 2000 is? And because it was city government, they sent me to three places that were wrong. Um, eventually, I got to the place that was right. And I learned very early on, always be nice to the receptionist, because that's the first person standing in your way for whoever you may want to ultimately be getting to. And I asked the receptionist very nicely if she would get my resume to the director of the commission on the year 2000, and she did. And sure enough, I got a call and got an interview. And I got a job as a policy analyst for the commission on the year 2000. My salary was just over $16,000. And I graduated on a Friday and started working on a Monday. All because you were a little bit fearless. Your mom gave you a lead, but you still had to act on it. And I find that so many people get leads in life and don't get out of the chair <laughs> and don't go do it. 
Um, Listen, nobody was going to come knocking on my door and give me a job. So, you know, I I agree with you completely. And I I think one of the things that I see now with young people, because I have a lot of people that work for us now, and most of them are in their 20s, is there is that whole sort of reactive uh, mentality. A lot of it, you know, I'll ask somebody, did you get something done? And they'll say, well, I sent an email. Okay, but that doesn't mean you actually accomplished anything. Did you pick up the phone? Did you knock on somebody's door? Did you get out of your chair? So I think that proactivity um, is really important. Well, I think when we talk about your career, that's going to be a trend. (laughs) You've been a guy that knocked on doors. Uh, You're a guy that built relationships. And I know this about relationships. You don't do those via email. No, no, no. You got to look people in the eye. So after the mayor's office, then what happened? So when I was in Atlanta, just dialing back for a moment, uh, because I knew that I wasn't going to go to grad school, I interned uh, in several places. One was the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and another was the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce. And I became good friends with a guy still around named Lee Ayers. Lee worked at the Atlanta Chamber. And he and I uh, became good friends, and he sort of adopted me. I was probably 19 years old. And back then I could, you know, hang with the big boys. And we used to go to Reggie's Tavern in the Omni after work. And I was there with Lee when they came up with an idea called Sports 2000 to make Atlanta a sports capital, if not the sports capital of America. And, you know, little ideas like the Georgia Dome when that was scratched out on a bar napkin uh, and things like that. And I got to intern for Lee. He wanted me to quit going to school and become the first employee of what became its own department in the chamber called Sports 2000. And I felt I owed my parents, you know, that I needed to graduate. So I turned down the job. Um, And then irrespective of geography, the best opportunity for me was up in New York at the commission on the year 2000. While I was there, because it was part of the mayor's office, I got to know the deputy mayor for economic development and a few others in City Hall. And I basically convinced them that New York City was losing out by not having any entity focused on sports as economic development. And uh, make a long story short, because it was not a priority of that administration, so it didn't, you know, wasn't a patronage thing. At the age of 23, they made me executive director of what became the New York City Sports Commission. And that's really where my career you know, started in earnest. You know, it's interesting about Atlanta Sports 2000. Uh, they were almost right. They just were four years late <laughs> because the 96 Olympic Games really became the, the catalyst for putting Atlanta on the map as a sports destination and a sports city. And that led to building venues and creating other things that has continued along. You know, I I would think that you were also at a point where New York was beginning to figure out that all facets of tourism were huge economic generators for the city. And that sports obviously was one of those. And I know that part of what you did was then, I don't know if if bid's the right word, but you got involved with the Goodwill Games. Yeah. And and I think your point is, is dead on, you know, sports is, it's not just about the fan part, uh, but it's about money. You know, the Meadowlands is hugely successful and that was a direct vision 
uh, of a guy who's long gone na- now named Sonny Werblin. And he took advantage of other places that were weak. So while I'm sitting here, my office is right by Madison Square Garden. The Meadowlands is probably seven miles from here. So you say, oh, what difference does it make if it's in New Jersey or if it's in Queens or in Brooklyn or the Bronx? Well, it makes a big difference because all those tax dollars, instead of coming to New York City and up to New York State and Albany, that money's going to Trenton uh, in New Jersey. So it makes an enormous difference economically. And both football teams are in New Jersey. Um, the hot, one of the, uh, the Nets now are back in Brooklyn, but for many years they were in New Jersey. And the hockey team that's still in Jersey, that team came from Colorado. So the Meadowlands was built um, off that recognition and um, New York City lost out. So we also had no proactive arm that was bidding to bring in amateur events, collegiate events, and also important, something I really look back on fondly, an advocate for young people. You know, there was an amateur boxing club, the Jerome, Jerome Boxing Club in a tough neighborhood in the South Bronx that uh, we were able to save from being evicted by the city. And those, you know, those kids who are, you know, young kids in sport, you know, if they didn't have boxing, they may be going a different way. So uh, we were very proud of all that. And so you got the Goodwill Games. Um, and I guess that was 98? Yeah, yeah. So... When we first started, I remember very early on, um, the goal was to bring the Olympics to New York. The Olympics have never been to New York City. And uh, so I remember sitting vividly in, with Mayor Ed Koch and the first deputy mayor, a different one, a guy named Bob Esnard. And he was saying, so what's this all about? And I said, well, Mr. Mayor, we would like to one day try to bring the Olympics to New York. This was about, Rick, I'm going to say 1988. And a guy named Bob Helmick was president of the U.S. Olympic Committee. And we were going to have a press conference with him at City Hall to talk about an effort to reestablish New York City as a great center for amateur and Olympic sports. And the mayor asked me, when would that be? And I said, well, mayor, the conventional wisdom, Barcelona was already decided in 92. The conventional wisdom then, remember, this is 1988 was that Beijing, uh, that, I'm sorry, Athens would get the 96 games. The centennial. Because of the centennial, yeah. Right. Yeah. Beijing would get 2000 and North America's turn would be 2004. That's what everybody thought. And there was a guy named Olin Castle who ran USA track and field. Then it was called TAC, the Athletics Congress. And he was sort of a whisperer along with his right-hand guy, a guy named Alvin Chris, who's gone now, um, because he... Uh, had a big dispute with Uberoth in 84, and they were not a big player at the LA Olympics. So Olin was determined um, that he wanted to be a Svengali for the next time an Olympics were in America, and he thought it would be New York. So I briefed the mayor, and I remember vividly, the mayor looked up in the sky and he said, 2004, am I gonna be mayor then? And he said, nah, commit everything. And it was very funny. So along we go. We were starting to talk about hosting different events. I remember the very first one we did was a regional rhythmic gymnastics event, which we did at NYU. You know, it doesn't get much lower on the ladder uh, than uh, regional gymnastics, uh, rhythmic gymnastics. But it was a start. And, uh, And that continued. But along comes my old friends in Atlanta, 
And out of concern after the 88 vote, remember that vote was taken in 89 for 96, there were a lot of concerns about Athens. It was unstable. And after the experience in Seoul and concerns about North Korea, the IOC wanted to make a safe choice. So it really came down to Atlanta and Toronto. And Atlanta won largely because it was viewed as a safe choice. Um, so that threw the whole thing out of whack. We looked around, said, is there anything else worth bidding for? And we decided to go, uh, take a run at the Goodwill Games, which was ultimately successful. Well, three three quick stories about the things you've said. I had a buddy who worked with me named Don Schummel, Notre Dame graduate. And uh, Don had had a membership at the New York Athletic Club. And, and for years, I would stay at the New York AC when I would come to, to, to New York, and it was known as the Olympic Club. It was, in fact, the, in the earliest days, Rick, of the Olympics, you go back to, 18, to like 1900, 1904, the New York Athletic Club team was the U.S. Olympic team. Yeah, and so the, 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 the Olympic memorabilia that was in the AC, just the – it was the Olympic Club. I mean, it just it really, really was, and so it was it was a fascinating place. The other thing I wanted to point out was I, I really believe the reason Atlanta won was because of Andrew Young. Uh, Andy Young delivered the third world vote. You know, the Olympics always comes down to the unknown. You know, what are the Africans going to vote? <laughs> and and he had that in his hip pocket from the get go, and that that you know, was the difference between, I think, Atlanta and Toronto. I think there was still a little bit, even though Calgary had been at successful games, there was still the fear of Montreal, too, where they had lost so much money in 76. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about was your your comment about tax base. You know, the, the Braves have caught a lot of criticism for leaving downtown Atlanta and moving to Cobb County. In fact, there's been a recent article in Sports Illustrated that – that basically lambasted them for doing that. Um, the plus side of that is Cobb County got the tax money, and they uniquely used it to give every public school teacher a raise this year. And so it's the first time I've seen a direct correlation between understanding the impact of, of um, sports uh, money uh, on the way of life in Cobb County. In this case, they decided to reward teachers. So it was uh, – it was pretty crazy. You know, I had I had worked on the Goodwill Games, and that's where we met uh, first uh, in St. Petersburg. And, and, and it was interesting because this was the last one, um, you know, that, that, that happened. And then I guess Ted sold the business. And- Faison Detra, you'll recall the Goodwill Games emerged as Ted Turner's brainchild to bridge the Olympic boycotts. Yep. Ironically, looking at where history went, we didn't go to the 80 games in Moscow protesting the Soviet Union invasion of Afghanistan. Where we still are. <laughs> Look how that turned out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then they paid us back in about the Soviet Union and the East Germany and a lot of the Eastern Bloc countries. Uh, I think China and Romania um, were the big ones that did go to L.A., um, Romania from the Eastern Bloc. Uh, and, but everybody else did not come. So when Ted Turner conceived the Goodwill Games, and the first one was 86 in Moscow, it had been 10 years in between East-West Olympic competition. So then they went to Seattle in 90, St. Petersburg, Russia in 94, 
and we were bidding for 98. And by that time, you know, things had started to change politically. Um, and so the raison d'etre for the Goodwill Games to continue would have been to go to other places that had challenges in the world. You know, they could have gone then to South Africa or, or Havana or done something interesting, you know, China. But they just chose, I think they did one more after 98 New York in Melbourne, and there was just no reason to go there. So it died after that. Yeah. So after the Goodwill Games, then what did you do? Well, we, um, you know, I started my own business. Yep. We, uh, we got a bunch of facilities built. Uh, there's an Olympic pool that we got built that's still there and a track stadium that's still there. And I started my own company uh, called Empire Sports and Entertainment. And it was sort of like a dog that you'd adopt from the pound. You know, you wouldn't quite know what breed it was. Um, and uh, and ended up doing all kinds of different things. I, I did a lot of marketing and sponsorship work, some PR work. Um, an opportunity dropped in my lap. An old friend of mine who was president of Madison Square Garden way back when and then moved to Nashville and was president of Opryland. We ended up doing uh, a country music play. You mentioned country earlier. Always Patsy Cline that we produced off Broadway. So yep. I learned how to produce a show off Broadway, which I didn't know anything about. Um, and all kinds of different things, you know, a little bit of just about everything. And did a lot of live production work for Radio City. Radio City, under the old owners, used to have a production company called Radio City Productions. And they were, you know, gun for hire production company. And I was part of the team that did a lot of the early big Super Bowls. I was the lead producer on two projects in particular. Uh, 97, we produced the opening of Arthur Ashe Stadium, where we had our talent. You wouldn't book either one today. We had Bill Cosby and Whitney Houston. Uh, and uh, then in 1999, I did Pepsi Centennial in Hawaii. And one night we had Riverdance, Ray Charles and the Rolling Stones. So that was pretty good. And uh, all different entrepreneurial projects. Well, you know, one of the key learnings here is, I've said this before on the show, but I have people that come to me and say, hey, Rick, I got five year of, years of experience. And I'll say, not really. You got one year of experience repeated five times. And, and, and one of the things that you did with all these unique different opportunities and you probably were a lot like me. You like to eat three times a day. And so, you know, in order to eat, you, you, you take whatever happens. But that that refined your skill set. It refined the relationships you made, the contacts that you had. And it. I think it led you to, to, to what you're doing today, which we'll talk about in a minute. But talk about a little bit about you know, taking some risk, <laughs> taking some chances. I, I think, you know, what, I'm not going to get the expression right, but what do they say? Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think your notion about like to eat three times a day is, is dead on. And, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you, you know, you have to have sort of an unshakable belief in yourself um, a little bit. And it's sort of that right mix of fear and ignorance. So I, I, I think, you know, at a certain point, you sort of in conversation with yourself say, I kind of think I know what I'm doing. And that's after many years of saying, I'm not really sure I know what I'm doing. But at some point, you know, the machinery, all sort of the gear sort of align and 
you gain a, uh, a confidence in yourself. And that's not to say that you won't continue to make mistakes because we all do every day. But on the big things, on the things that matter, that you're able to ground yourself and say, I can get this done. Um, and you learn how to finish. I think that was the, the probably the biggest takeaway was it's very easy to drive into the red zone. It's much harder to put the ball into the end zone. And I think at a certain point, um, again, without any arrogance at all, I learned how to put the ball in the end zone. And, and that is a collective uh, result of experience and, you know, falling down on the canvas and getting back up. Well, one of the, my favorite things you've done is the hot dog contest at Coney Island. I mean, I mean, it's just, I mean, who knew? Tell me about this. Tell me about this. Well, it's a very funny, uh, kitschy New York thing. So for about 100 years in Coney Island, on the majestic corner of Surf and Stillwell Avenues, where the original Nathan's hot dog joint sits, they have had this hot dog contest on July 4th. And my son's 24 now. When he was about 10 months old, it was July. It was one of those 95 degree, you know, everything's on the asphalt, no place to hide days. I said to my wife, I'll, I said, let's let's go to I want to go to this. I've always wanted to see it. So we go to the hot dog contest and it was the era of the first great Japanese eater, uh, Hirofumi Nakajima. And it was in a little alleyway behind Nathan's. There were maybe 200 people there, uh, and, but lots of media. And I remember there was an ambulance or a fire truck parked on the street, and there, people were standing on top of it just so that they could see. And I just thought it was magical. Um, and through my buddy in PR, a longtime friend who's been our PR firm forever, Kenny Sunshine, I said, Kenny, do you know these guys who do this? It's a guy named George and Rich Shea. He says, yeah, I know George. So I called George and I said, George, I'd like to take you to lunch. And uh, he said, sure, we had lunch. And I said, listen, I think this thing could be much bigger. Would you let us help you? You know, there was no production. The eaters were sitting on, you know, standing behind like tables, like you put in your backyard. You know, if you and Charlotte were having some people for barbecue. Uh, and make a long story short, they let us take over the production. We moved it to the other side of the building. Um, bigger and bigger and bigger every year. Now it's on ESPN and we have a live audience of 50, 60,000 people. So, That's crazy. Um, it's crazy. a cultural, cultural phenomenon. It's Absolutely. not our core business, but it's a lot of fun. And it gave us the name of our company, which is Stillwell Partners, which derives its name from that grand corner of Surf and Stillwell. Well, let's talk about your coup de grace which is Advertising Week. Um, you know, Advertising Week in New York is a phenomenon. You've now taken it worldwide. But let's go back to the genesis of Advertising Week. Um, you, you know, obviously the industry has been around for a long, long time, but nobody ever had the, the hutchpah to say, let's celebrate it. So how did it happen? So um, one of the blessings and curses in, in, uh, in life is being able to get tickets for things. And there was a gal who I knew who worked for DDB, a big Omnicom creative agency, uh, who would call me on occasion for tickets. And it was always one of those, you know, need five for Eric Clapton that sold out that night. You know, it was always like a difficult one. But I liked her and I would always try to help her. Her name was Abby Hirshhorn. And uh, she calls me in the summer of 02. 
and says, my boss is the chairman of the four A's. I didn't know what the four A's was. I knew two A's is if you drink too much, three A's, <laughs> you know, who you call if you got a flat tire on the Brooklyn Queen. <laughs> I said, what's the four A's? So she explains it to me and says, it's the American Association of Advertising Agencies, which is the ineffective trade association for creative and media agencies. And she says, we know the industry's uh, on the edge of a lot of change. But back in 02, you know, Rick, nobody knew what was coming. In 02, Mark Zuckerberg was either still in high school or a freshman. Um, you know, the iPhone was 2006. YouTube was 2007. You know, nobody was talking about programmatic buying of media. You know, back then, trust and advertising meant the old definition of trust. You know, can you trust what you're hearing or reading or seeing. Now the definition of trust because of data and privacy is a very different definition of trust, much more complicated. So back then, you know, almost all of the issues that we're talking about today, certainly all the technology driven issues, not only were they lesser issues, most of them didn't exist at all. Um, but they knew the industry was about to go through a lot of disruptive, technologically driven change. They knew that the industry morale was low, that the industry had chronic problems attach, uh, attracting young talent and had a huge uh, diversity problem. So with all of those as sort of very big sweeping challenges, Abby said, we went to somebody at Omnicom and they couldn't think of anything. Could you think of something? And it really started as simply as that. So uh, I've always been very big on the where and where Advertising Week events are held. We don't do anything, you know, in like a traditional hotel ballroom or a convention center or anything like that. And so the very first meeting really set the tone for what would happen over the next 15 years. Going back to my experience at Radio City, the president, a guy named Arlen at the time, really liked me. And I didn't, I was a consultant to them. I didn't need an office, but Arlen liked having me around. So he said, Checkner, I want you near me. So I said, all right, but I, I don't need, I, you know, I'm a consultant, I have an office. He, and then he offered me something that nobody could refuse. He offered me a office with my own bathroom. So I said, <laughs> all right, I'll take that. So uh, you, you are a cheap date. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, yeah. Peaked, I peaked 20 years ago. I had the best office I'll ever have when I was 35. So um, because I was in Radio City, after six o'clock, the executive entrance would close and you'd have to go out the stage door. So I got to know the building really well. And there's this little jewel of a space in Radio City called the Roxy Suite. And it's named after a guy named Roxy Rothafel, who created the Rockettes and was really the first great impresario of Radio City Musical going back, you know, 70, 80 years. So little suite is there and the owners use it for entertainment. Sinatra used to entertain when he would perform there. And it's really a special little room. So by then I was long gone from Radio City, but I called a buddy of mine. I said, hey, can you do me a favor? I need I have a meeting. I want to use the Roxy suite for, you know, an hour or two. And um, Ken Case, who was the chairman of the four A's, he's gone now. Um, he came and I presented a bunch of ideas. Some were my own. Some I borrowed from Fashion Week. Some I borrowed from the Tribeca Film Festival, which had launched just a year before as a response to bring people back downtown after 9-11. That's the real origin of the Tribeca Film Festival. 
And um, they liked the ideas. And we went back and forth for seven months. And then in uh, May of 03, they said, all right, we're going to go forward with this and we'll put up some seed money. We're either going to do a search for a director or hire you. Are you interested? I said, well, I worked on the thing for seven months for free. So sure, I'm interested. And I think, Rick, just going back to, you know, some of the subjects you talk about, I think, you know, the business model, this may not be how they teach it at the London School of Economics, but it's sort of a blend of things that pay and things that you chase that might pay. And this was in the latter category. And so we agreed that I would take it on initially as a consultant. Uh, I went right to Mayor Bloomberg, who understood how important the industry was to the economy. And we did an economic impact study and showed that 18, 19 cents of every dollar in the New York City economy could be traced to the advertising and media industry. And so we hosted what became the first opening gala at Gracie Mansion. And the thing took off. And now here we are, 2019 into 2020. And we're in, we just finished our 16th year in New York going into our eighth year in London, our fifth year in Tokyo, our third year in Mexico City, our third year in Sydney, and launching in Johannesburg. So, But it's all because somebody called looking for an idea. Well, one of my favorite things that you did early on was what I call the parade of mascots. Uh, you, you know, we, we work with the Mascot Hall of Fame in Whiting, um, <clears throat> Indiana, and you were the first one to say, hey, you know, Charlie the Tuna and the Jolly Green Giant and, you know, all these great, you know, Tony the Tiger, all these great mascots have value because in many cases that celebrated the creative genius of guys like Leo Burnett and others. Um, so how'd that come about? Yeah, I think, I think you know, they were a very visual uh, symbol of the best of the industry. You know, the icons and the great slogans are sort of the enduring work that the industry has created. So um, the very first event of the very first advertising week, we opened the NASDAQ Stock Exchange in Times Square. And we had, uh, you know, Tony the Tiger and the M&Ms and Mr. Clean and Miss Chiquita and the Maytag Man. And we had the Mr. Peanut Nutmobile and the Red Shoe Car and Ronald McDonald. And we literally did a parade we, between the specialty vehicles and then all the icons who didn't have vehicles, we put them in convertibles. I think we had a deal with Chrysler. And um, we went through Times Square. We were on one Times Square on the big video boards. When Panasonic had their video board, they had a camera up there. And then we went left on 42nd and up Madison Avenue, the historic home of advertising. And we literally put plaques in the sidewalk. Um, and America voted for the, the first year was five favorite slogans and five favorite icons. And, uh, we've inducted icons, uh, ever since. And have had a lot of funny stories, uh, with the icons over the years, including losing Juan Valdez and his borough backstage at the Apollo theater. That was a, that was a favorite of mine, but, uh, <laughs> but we still, we still do that. It's become a lesser part of the week overall, but we've kept it. Uh, kept it in the mix. Well, one of the things I'm most impressed about what you do is how you've stayed relevant. Uh, this is a dynamic industry, as you said. Technology's changing everything. You've, you're not stuck in the past at all. Your your panelists, your locations, your subject matter, all that has evolved. I, I think it has become, you know, ultimately it was a, 
a celebration of advertising. In many cases, it's become a look ahead. It has been kind of a, a what's the latest trends or what are trends that haven't even been identified yet? Yeah, well, thank you. It's, it's kind of you to say that. I, I, I think two things. I think you know, for your for your listeners, I, th- I think number one, a big mistake that people make is they get married to their own ideas. And one of the reasons I'm convinced why we're still here is, and you you mentioned it, is that this thing changes every year. So from year to year, it is completely reinvented, and there is almost nothing that we do where we'll say, "Oh no, that's how we do it." and to resist change. So I think being open to reinvention, especially if you're talking about an industry like ours that has been, you know, really severely disrupted by technology. I mean, look at the rise uh, and the amount of money that Google and Facebook take out of the marketplace. That number was zero, you know, in 2004. And today it's billions and billions of dollars. So that money came from somewhere else. Um, the second thing, um, is, you know, really just keeping your finger on the pulse. And what we've been able to do is evolve advertising week as a platform where issues that are bigger than the industry are discussed. So for example, um, we've had Emma Stone and, uh, Jesse Eisenberg on stage with us in New York the last two years talking about mental health. We've had Nikki Six from Molly Crew and the Surgeon General of the United States talking about the opioid crisis. Um, we've had uh, Paul Palman, the CEO of Unilever, who really, uh, it, to his credit, I think the whole rise of business and purpose as being not in conflict with profitability. You know what Paul did when he was running Unilever around sustainability. You know is really a model in many ways. Um, And, you know, we've had Paul now on stage talking about something else that he's involved with, uh, a group called the Valuable 500, which is about getting businesses to hire people with disabilities. So that Advertising Week (laughs) has evolved as a platform to talk about those issues. We had Al Gore in London on the environment. So I like that. We've done two things with the UN over the years around climate change, um, including an effort that we organized with the Secretary General uh, Ban Ki-moon that was a global campaign at that time, this was 06, 07, to extend the Kyoto Protocol, which is what predated the Paris Accords. So I really love personally that Advertising Week has become a place where those transcendent issues are now discussed, and this is the case at everyone all over the world. Well, let's close our conversation today with something fun. I keep a list of the joys of my life. And and one of the joys of my life on my list is Chop Suey Day at the Friars Club with Matt Schechner. Uh, the, the Friars, tell me about the Friars. It, it is so special. Yeah, it's a, that's something. So the Friars uh, is about 100 some odd years old. It's the historic home of entertainment and comedy. Uh, back in the day when Sinatra was our chairman, you know, it was uh, you'd come to lunch there and, you know, you'd see Groucho Marx and Sid Caesar and, you know, Henny Youngman and Milton Berle and all the legends. And it's still around. Uh, and on Thursdays, there's a, a special 
and it, it, that includes the Lachoy crunchy noodles from the can. Nothing but nothing but the best for you, Rick. Uh, and uh, I hope to get you back up here on Thursday for lunch sometime soon. Well, it's a very special place. My friend, you are a very, very special guy. I'm so proud of your career. I'm proud of what you've done. And I want to thank you for being with us today from the bridge. Thank you, buddy. Great to be with you. Let's close today on the road with Rick. There's a terrific restaurant on the south end of San Francisco Bay in Burlingame, California, where you can sit and watch the planes take off and land at the San Francisco International Airport. It's Kincaid's, a truly wonderful California-style seafood restaurant. Everything is fresh and cooked to perfection, but you absolutely must start with their famous Dungeness crab and artichoke dip with hot focaccia bread. They have steaks and chops, and they have fresh grilled fish, along with a great California wine list. But the crab and artichoke dip is totally worth the trip. That's it from the bridge for this week. If you like what you're hearing, then let us know. We'll see you again soon. This has been your captain, Rick Jones, from The Bridge. If you like what you hear, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. wants me to be what they want me to be. But I can't be nobody else but me. Troubles behind Gone fishing Rest in